0: And uh, it's a smallish group, but you're close together, so that's convenient for me, so that's good. And we do try to use the microphone so that we can have this be a a podcast that uh, has a grand total of seven listeners, I think, so it's not like we have millions. But it is a good way to record it and, and, um, and to share it in the future as well, so you be aware that you'll be recorded in what you say. And we are doing the hard sayings of the Bible, and the one that we're going to do tonight is probably not on a lot of people's lists, but it introduces the idea of um, slavery in the Bible. And this particular text has um, cast a long shadow over church history, I think, and in our thinking today. And so this will open up, in some ways, a very sensitive third rail kind of conversation for us. You understand the term third rail? Has anybody not heard that before? You know what I mean by third rail? I'm not sure who started that term. It's an old term. But back in the day, there used to be train tracks that had a third rail that carried the electricity. And so an electric train was powered by the rails, not by something above it like you would see now, and so in the early version. And so if you were walking along and you touched or stepped on the third rail, you would get a pretty big poke. And so the idea is some things you can talk about, but some things like politics and religion in a family at Thanksgiving can explode, right? It, so it's a it's a dangerous topic. It's prone toward misunderstanding and strong feelings and uh, hurt feelings potentially, right? So that's why we have to be really careful to ask for God's wisdom and grace as we talk about these things of um, in our day, in our culture especially, with regard to race <clears throat> and what it is, what it's not, what racism is, what it's not, and what is the Bible's relationship to these issues. Because uh, I'm afraid, like other things in our lives. We may be more informed by our personal and family backgrounds than we are by what the Bible would say. And so it's important for us to try to um, discern God's word on the topic. So this is the hard saying. In Genesis 9, this is after the flood. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard, and when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness, and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed or cursed be Canaan. That's his grandson, then, right? The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth, Japheth territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth also. All right. So that's the hard saying. In particular, what is this curse of Noah toward his descendants that declares that Canaan will be the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers? And even a slave to his uncle Shem's family? and a slave to his uncle Japheth's family, right? And because of the sin of Ham. <clears throat> Part of the reason I've thought of this as our topic for tonight is twofold. One of them is um, this, the name Ham was, I hadn't connected that before, but did you notice in Psalm, uh, or in, uh, in the passage from Exodus 15, Egypt was the 10th of Ham. So I think the Egyptians are descendant <coughs> excuse me, are descendants of Ham as well. And so there's these three family lines, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Okay. The other things I remember having to study this for Hebrew and seminary. Oh, the other reason we're talking about tonight is because I have a personal life story this week that kind of applies. All right. So uh, the we, we studied this passage in seminary, and it's kind of hard to discern what's going on here. But what, when uh, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside, the text is being real brief here and not very explanatory of what happened. But, it find, but we find out later um, when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him there's the implication that there might have been more than just seeing his father's nakedness, that he had done something, or that he, when when uh, Ham came out and, and, uh, and told his two brothers, his two brothers outside, right, about it, maybe the way he told the story about his father's nakedness to his brothers was of a mocking and disrespectful and uh, and or sensuously offensive tone or content that deserve this curse. And so something happened that is worse than just seeing somebody naked. There's something else going on, it seems. Okay? And so the honor that Shem and Japheth gave their father by backing their way in and covering their father was more than just his body, I think. I don't know. We don't know. But you can kind of, you kind of scratch your head, right? What's going on here? So something's bad. The other reasons that people would maybe conclude these things is because Canaan was the parent of the nations who inhabited the land of Canaan, right? You know, the land of Canaan is the land that God promised to Abraham And then he said the iniquity of the Amorites, that's one of the descendants, has not yet full. And so there was this time that had to pass. And when it was the right time, when their sin had gotten great enough, then God uh, tells Israel to come. That might be why he delayed, but they they rescued him from Egypt after 400 years. And then after 40 years of wandering, they came in and they conquered the nation. And this is another hard saying of the Bible, when God said do Straight-up genocide, right? Wipe them out, man, woman, child, and animal. Like, clean it out. That's a separate hard saying. How does God do that? But anyway, as part of that is that the wickedness of Canaan and his descendants was so bad that it justified, in God's eyes, complete annihilation of their populations. So it would be as bad as or worse than the conditions prior to the flood It would be as bad as, or worse than, the conditions of Sodom and Gomorrah when God came and blew the city away and burned it up. The other things that we know from archaeology and other evidences and the nature of the gods that were worshipped by the Canaanites is that there was a lot of um, homosexuality and um, sexual content in their worship, in their... Uh, the ways and who the nature of the gods that they served as false gods and the ways that they would conduct that worship were pagan and awful, right? So very uh, terrible. So all of these things add together that somehow Ham was a pretty nasty little boy or a man, right? He was a grown-up man. He was married, and he, he was disrespectful to his father somehow. All right, so those are that's the background for the curse. The problem is, this passage, cursed became the lowest of slaves, will he be to his brothers? And the follow-on promises or or statements that um, Shem would be blessed, Japheth would be blessed, and that Canaan would be slaves in both of their tents as well, has been used by and I've heard it used by individuals to justify a worldwide abuse and use of certain people groups as slaves because they were cursed as the descendants of Ham. Have you ever heard that before? Has anyone ever heard that line of reasoning before? It's been used to justify um, (coughs) the slavery that we've seen in the world. Now the next thing to ask is well where did these nations go? Ham, Shem and Japheth. From what I understand Shem is the father of the peoples that became Abraham's family line, and so the at least the Israel, um, the Israelis, and the Palestinians, the Middle Eastern, the Arabic peoples, through Abraham, through Isaac and Ishmael, are descendants of Shem. So somehow, that family is at least part of. We don't know where else all of the Shems' descendants went. I don't, anyway. Somebody might, but. They're at least the Middle Eastern peoples. The other understanding is that Japheth's family, I think, is associated with the North. And so I'm guessing from my guess and understanding that these are the, he's the uh, progenitor of the white peoples of the world. I don't know where the Asian peoples came from. Um, We have the Tower of Babel incident that's not long after this incident, right? So this is the, flood not long after is the tower of babel where they gather to people as one speaking one language they're going to rebel against god and produce another demand for god to judge the whole world and so by grace to alleviate the advancement of evil god confounds their speech and creates multicultural ism i don't know if ism is the right word he creates a plural culture world. Right? He causes language to be different for the first time in recorded history. And people spread out because they can't communicate. And so from, from the Tower of Babel, all of the nations of the earth come. And so I don't know where the Asian peoples came from. Maybe Shem's family, maybe Japheth's family. But in this whole theory, Ham's family is the one that went south. And so that would be Africa and Egypt. And so the expected understanding is that the dark-skinned peoples of the earth, in particular Africans, are the descendants of Ham. All right? So this passage again has been used to justify and excuse uh, chattel slavery, even in, in Western culture. And um, I'm not sure what question to ask here, other than have you heard this kind of thing before? Is this, is this familiar to you at all? All right, so this is this is a tough saying. It's a difficult saying in the Bible, and it introduces the whole topic then of, well, what is the Bible's view with regard to racial differences, family conditions and in, 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 um, in situations? What other parts of the Bible add to this complexity, right? So I'm not trying to solve the complexity yet. I'm just trying to ask you, give me other parts of the Bible that also contribute to the same sense of complexity that this issue is, is uh, a complex one to figure out. What other parts of the Bible help us interpret or maybe misinterpret God's plan with regard to, to racial differences? I'm going to define race As a, they're all human beings, right? So there's not less than or more than human beings. But within the human being, within the species of human beings, there are gene pools that we have named as races. And so, um, I don't know, red and yellow, black and white. Our precious in his sight. Right? I mean, the world is full of different kinds of people. And so this is... So where else in the Bible adds to this complexity? Mary?
1: A verse that my mother uh, always emphasized, look not on the outward appearance, but because God sees the heart. And she would always tell us, you know, you check somebody out by what they do, not what they look like. She meant that... You know just uh, general genetic and plus clothing and things like that
0: that's a good mom so, yeah that right god is God is not a um, he is not driven by or limited to his perceptions of the outside of a person like we are right that there's part of that part of that verse to samuel right that that verse comes from Samuel. When Samuel is trying to pick the next king after Saul and he sees all of David's older brothers and, and he said, Surely this is the one and, and God says, No, Samuel, you're looking at a different thing than I'm looking at. And um, and so that's a really good indication. A
2: question? You ask what adds complexity or are you just asking
0: for other verses that inform the topic? Both. Okay. Both, yeah. So it's complexity and like what are things that add to the hardness of the saying. What are things that resolve the hardness of the saying? This one, the sort of God is not a respecter of persons, kind of helps resolve some of the tension. One of the thing, another big one that I would remind is that when Peter had the uh, experience of speaking the gospel to the Gentiles and the Holy Spirit came, one of the things that he said was, now I realize that God is not a respecter of persons, which was a big revelation for him as a Jew, it was really hard for them to understand that the Gentiles could participate in God's kingdom because prior to that they could not, which is the complexity part.
2: I have a verse that helps for me resolve that in Colossians 3 here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. So there's
0: another uh, passage that we would go to to remind us that there is not a difference between barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. So racial differences, economic differences, and even slave or not slave differences. We're all equally in the family of of God through Jesus. And so that that should inform how we interpret race, racism, and all those things. But it also brought the word slave back into the equation. <laughs> and what, you know. But there's other parts of the Bible that contribute to the complexity. So let me ask for those specific. What, what other parts of the Bible could a person who wanted to advance the idea that all black people should, because they're the descendants of Ham, should be enslaved, if you wanted to advance that agenda, what other parts of the Bible would you try to pull out of context and use, have you seen used or other examples like that? any other can you think of other places in the Bible where where there are what sounds like some sort of racial distinction making I, I feel like I can think of lots. For example, the Jews were forbidden to marry outside of the Jewish people. It was a really big deal. You were not supposed to marry a Moabite. That you do not. You don't marry a Midianite. You don't. You know that. You don't go outside of your own family line. Why? So let me get you. Well, it's the mic is not for us. It's for the people who listen later. So. Here
2: you go. <laughs> I was just thinking it, it, um there's lots of um uh, passages about the Jews and uh you know and everybody else being dogs, basically the Gentiles were dogs to them. So I mean everyone as far as they were concerned was below them, so
1: In uh, First Peter, it says, um, let's "See if I get the right place. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, and that you know might give someone license to be a bad master."
0: Yeah, the instructions to servants and to slaves in the New Testament to be a good. And not only when they're watching you and to be all that stuff and to be a profitable servant could be used as, hey, you know, you need to just buck up and accept the way God made, uh, would sort of assume and promote a class system of, of sorts. And so that's complex too. I think it's important for us to understand that biblical or the cultural slavery of the New Testament time is not the same as chattel slavery of like the United States experienced a couple hundred years ago. It's a different kind. But that is, I think in some ways, that's leaning a little too hard to to make the New Testament slavery not bad. It was still slavery. You still lost freedom, and there was still a lot of um, abuses. But it wasn't the same as the way that they sold and bred and separated families and, and did horrible things to the in-chattel slavery. That wholesale stealing people, shipping them across the sea. And that, that was really pretty bad. So Paul, Paul would not, I, I, I want to say that Christianity and Paul in particular would not have, um, he would have regarded that as not an acceptable way to live. Whereas being an indentured servant slash lifelong employee of a of a family in a scenario where there isn't the same commerce and freedom you know you, you attached yourself to your master's family is a lifelong kind of job sort of thing and the, do you do, you, do you, have you noticed in the Old Testament the instructions to the people of Israel about how to treat their slaves and that if a slave loved his master he could he could go and have his ear pierced in the doorway of his master and say, "I love my master. I want to serve him through my whole life." And there's these awkward passages about you can kill a slave without being guilty of the same capital crime that if you didn't kill a slave. So slaves seem to be less valuable as persons, which is kind of a scary thought. But that that was confusing to me. And um, so there's there's a lot the whole the whole system of slaves. And the way that you talk about it in the economy of Israel was awkward for us as modern day Americans, for sure. So, those are the things that you could lean in and make it complicated. Any other uh, passages or concepts that you've struggled with in this regard or you've heard people struggle with? Marie? Well, it says that Canaan
1: himself you know, would be a slave. <laughs> but
2: I don't know that that necessarily means all of his family.
0: Yeah, that that does bring up another question, is when the Bible says these kinds of things, is there some sort of a generational, national tendency of families? I mean, when you see the predictions about the difference between Jacob and Esau, and how Esau's descendants will be a a wild donkey of a man and will never submit to... And there there seems to be in the Bible these descriptions of large people groups that are going to follow after the characteristics of their progenitors, right, of their ancestors. Do you see that? Have you seen that in the Bible, right? And... um, What is that? Is that stereotyping? Is it prejudice? And then the text that Tony read this morning was so beautiful. You know, the Lord, the Lord forgiving. But then holding guilty those who sin against him. And their children hold. to, To how many? The fourth generation. Yeah. And so the idea that God would hold my great, great, great grandson guilty for my sin seems to... or or if not guilty, at least punished by my sins um, or the consequences of my sin seems to be really, man, that's really, really? (laughs) You kind of want to say. It seems, there's a good question. What Barb just said is, is this prophetic or prescriptive, right? And this is a really key distinction to always try to make in the Bible. Is the Bible describing a reality or is it prescribing a reality when joseph uh, jacob had four wives does that mean that every good patriarch who wants to serve god should go get four wives or is he describing the mess that jacob brought into his life by breaking god's ways and having four wives and you know you could ask the same question about solomon and yet the text tells us God said not to do that. And yet Solomon went and got these wives from foreign gods and from foreign countries. And it wound up being a snare to him and it wrecked them and it caused them to fall. And so the text doesn't always comment on whether it was good or bad. It sometimes just describes what happened. And we have to look at the whole Bible together. So I think you're right that... This whole idea of God visiting upon the children of the fourth generation is not necessarily a prescription that God has to and wants to do that, but it's more of a description of what happens is when somebody's twisted and violates God's ways, it's hard to get that pattern out of the family from generation after generation. And so um, the warning ought to be to us to do right by God and, and repent and go the right way for the sake of my great-grandson. Not because God's unfair, but because the consequences are so great of being raised in a dysfunctional way. Right? Who knows how bad the uh, favoritism that Isaac had for his son Esau And the favoritism that Isaac's wife, Rebekah, had for her son, Jacob, that manifests itself in the favoritism that Jacob has for Joseph. And therefore manifests itself in the fact that his other sons almost killed Joseph or tried to, right? And that that favoritism bleaks down. And even when Joseph's sons are being blessed by his father, Jacob, Ephraim and Manasseh, he comes in, his father's blind or near blind, and he's going to bless him. And he starts to bless him. He said, No, no, you got it wrong. You got the Ephraim, you got him in the wrong order. And, and Jacob said, No, no, I'm doing this on purpose. And he blesses the younger more than the older, even though they're both sharing the blessing. So this, this insipid patriotism, favoritism, Maybe did take generations to get out of God. So that could be part of it. That does give me a sigh of relief to relieve the tension, right? That when God judges the generations, so the descendants of Cain might have taken or Canaan might have taken their fathers' ways and made sport of things that ought not to be made sport of, and produced a whole nation uh, nations of wickedness, and perversion. Maybe so. Other thoughts about that? I have a couple more cases of what I would call racism, race-sensitive issues in the text. One of them is in Numbers chapter 12. So this is during the wanderings in the desert. So after Sinai, they go to the land, They don't have faith to go in, so the giants are too big, so then God says, all right, you're going to wander for 40 years. During the 40 years, there's just a lot of time to get in trouble, and people get in trouble. So Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Now, from what I understand, Cush is the as an African people group, and so a Cushite was a dark-skinned person, maybe really dark skinned So Abraham, oh, excuse me, Moses was married to a woman who was from that people group. So he had a black wife. You would you would have to historically you would have no argument against that. And so somehow or another, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of this Cushite wife. And that's really we we hardly know anything else about this Cushite wife, right? He met her in the in the desert. Her father was some sort of a priest, and then he married her. And then after he accepts God's call, an angel is going to meet him by the road and kill him because he didn't circumcise his sons. And his Cushite wife saves his life by by circumcising his son's form. So that's a weird, weird story. I have no idea what's going on. And she says, a bloody husband you are to me for doing this. I mean, that's sort of the word she says. And then that's the last we kind of hear of her until this occasion. So um, I don't know if they're complaining about her cooking or her language style. It's sister-in-law talk, right? This is Miriam and Aaron not liking their sister-in-law. And so, but anyway, they took the occasion as, has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And so there's this rebellion slash criticism slash attack on Moses that starts with this racial reference. That's about as much as you can say about that, right? Except that it goes really bad for Miriam right now. The rest of the story is not good for her. And that's more because of what they said against Moses, not just the Cushite way. So the rest of the story now. Now this is an interesting question for theologians. The text that Moses wrote has this statement in it. Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Did Moses write that or did Joshua after Moses was gone, insert that sort of as a margin comment, you know, that, that's a whole separate comment. But anyway, so the, the Bible tells us, however we got it, the Bible tells us that Moses was super humble. And one of the illustrations of his humility is the way he dealt with this situation. At once, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. This is news. This is new for Aaron and Miriam because they don't go to the tent of meeting, only Moses does. So the three of them went out. And then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and he stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. And when the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there are prophets of the Lord among you, I reveal myself to them in visions and I speak to them in dreams, like to Joseph and to Pharaoh through Joseph, you know the dreams and the visions, he said, but this is not true of my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. We quoted that verse today. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of Yahweh. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So this story points out how spectacularly different Moses was as a prophet than anybody else has ever been before or since, really. And so then the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. And when the cloud lifted up, so they couldn't see the form, they just were surrounded by a cloud, right? Miriam's skin was leprous. It was, became as white as snow, and Aaron turned her order, and he saw that she had defiling skin disease, and he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, That's the better way to talk to your brother. I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. So Moses didn't defend himself, but God did. It's a pretty interesting story. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So, man, poor Aaron, if you ever did see that, and you would use that to describe the situation, that's a... But he did... And so Moses cried out to the Lord, Please, God, heal her. And the Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days, and after that she can be brought back. So Marian was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the, and the people did not move on until she was brought back. So Marian had a, <clears throat> a brush with the Almighty, for speaking against her brother. And her brother Moses handled it by trusting the Lord and staying humble, and he never had to get in a racial argument with Marianne and Aaron, and they repented of their foolish sin, which I would I would have to say is probably, you'd be impressing it to say it was primarily a racial issue. It might have started with a racial Issue, but it really became a defiance of Moses' role, and God defends Moses' role. But it also is interesting that God does not, in any place, way, shape, or form, condemn having a Kushite wife. Right? It's not part of the story. Okay. Another passage, and they sing a new song in Revelation. We sang this today. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchase for God members of every tribe and language and people and nation. So there's something about the future worship of God that celebrates and includes somebody from every one of those groups that split off from the Tower of Babel, all of the languages. So this would mean that the worship in heaven will be way more integrated than our service was this morning. We will probably be the minority. All right. So those are the only passages I had time to try to put up here. But the, oh, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So they all equally kingdom of priests. So God does not show favoritism. He doesn't look on the outward appearance. There's neither Jew nor Greek where the, the whole difference between Jew and Gentile was resolved in Jesus. The amazing miracle of the New Testament church is that it was two races that were previously had a wall of enmity between them are now one church. And so if there were ever a, a racial divide that the Bible could justify would be Jew versus Gentile. And that is exactly the racial barrier that God completely eliminates in the church. And Paul fights for that over and over and over. And he insists that the Gentile does not have to be Jewish. So the Bible gets rid of racial barriers, distinctions, perforations, um, oppressions. Right? More thoughts, John?
1: I've been thinking of <clears throat> several situations in the Old Testament and several in the New Testament that kind of, uh, in a sense, shows that there's there's another way to be different. What you've alluded to is that following Christ or you know, uh, following the true and one one true God, and uh, two of them relate to women uh, in the Old Testament you have Rahab the harlot okay and and Ruth the Moabitist, who they were total outsiders, they were not even supposed to be able to marry and so what they did was was that they instead of being in a sense of the of the Jewish race outwardly, they became Jewish inwardly they claimed the one and true God for, for them. And as far as you know, the ra- different races, you have Philip leading the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, and you had a, uh, I forget what his name was, but he was called the black in the uh, one church in Antioch. So uh, obviously there were dark-skinned people in the church at, at, at that time,
0: So and they were accepted fully. Amen. I I do think that that's an interesting distinction to make is where did Rahab the harlot come from and Ruth the Moabitess? They're forbidden to marry outside of that group. And in the story of the book of Nehemiah, there was a bunch of people in Jerusalem who had married Moabite women and Nehemiah calls them out on it and tells them, you need to put away those foreign wives. And they did. They divorced their wives in order to be honoring to God. But the difference between Ruth and uh, Rahab and others is that they proselytized? They, they became Jewish, and therefore they were not a foreign wife. They were they. They went through the process of becoming Jewish, and so you could enter into the people of God and become a Jew. There was even Egyptians who fled with Egypt with the nation of Israel and were proselytized. They became Jewish, and you could do that. And remember, in the time of Jesus, he he. Um, he criticized the Pharisees because they would go, you know, they're, they're mean to their own people, but they would cross, you know, ocean and sea to proselytize one convert. And then he says, and ironically, make them twice as much a son of hell as you guys already are. And so, you know, they did that all the time. But uh, that was a choice to become Jewish, which illustrates that the people of God was not a racial distinction. It was a religious distinction. And God, when God said not to marry outside, it wasn't a race-based thing, it was a religious purity thing. And so if they came into the family, it was not a scandal, and they were supposed to welcome the alien in those things. And so um, that's why the New Testament is so remarkable when the uh, problem that came up when, Paul, or when Peter preached to the Gentiles and they received the Holy Spirit, and then in Acts 15 there was this big debate, well, we got to make them Jews. See, they always thought that every time a Gentile became a person who followed God, they had to proselytize. You have to become circumcised. You have to observe the Sabbath. You have to use the food laws. And that was the amazing thing is, wait a minute. If the Holy Spirit doesn't wait for that to happen, who are we to make it happen? And so they recognize, and this is the amazing thing of the church, is that you and I as Gentiles do not have to become Jewish to enter the family of God. So that's the big difference. It's no longer true that we have to convert to Judaism externally and uh, culturally in order to be part of God's family. That's a really great blessing for us. Yeah, exactly. And which reveals... Yes, it, it, it's a heart issue, he said, not a coach. And it, but that also demonstrates that way back when God told Samuel, I look on the out, uh, heart, not the outside appearance, that that seeds of that were already there, and God did welcome the outsider. It was Naaman who got his leprosy cured. And it was the, the widow in Zarephath that took care of Elijah that was an outsider. And God was kind to the Gentiles over and over again. And they were, the way God wanted to be is that Israel was supposed to be a light for the Gentiles. They were supposed to show the world how cool it was to worship God, not to distinguish and keep them away. And so in a lot of ways, the uh, Jewish racial distinction of calling the Gentiles dogs was their own invention, not God's. And it's a sad comment on human nature. But in Christ, we're all one, and we're free from those kinds of things. Or we should be. So, if, even if, back to our text, even if the curse on Ham's descendants, and Canaan specifically, is a curse of slavery, if it's descriptive, possibly, right? This is what's going to happen, it did happen. But even if it was a curse that was, also prescriptive, like I want to make, I'm going to make this happen, which God ultimately does make everything happen in history, right? It, it could be argued that it was fulfilled in Canaan's lifespan alone. It was fulfilled in the descendants of Canaan in the land of Canaan alone, but it doesn't necessarily imply that every black-skinned person would forever be justifiably in a racial discrimination, slavery scenario, right? The fact that history has borne out that most often it has been that people group that have been enslaved is reflective of the descriptive nature but doesn't mean that it's prescriptive for how we are to behave today. If anything, we should be counter-cultural, right? You had a comment, Joel?
2: I appreciate that you went here because I was sitting here thinking about even though Noah says that curse, I don't think we actually see that curse made manifest in a very clear way that it was it was a result of Noah's curse upon Canaan. Really, we don't. It, I think it's a leap of judgment. And the fact that it, the curse is never brought back up again, and then as soon as we get the Old Testament law, the description or the function of slavery as described in Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus is completely different than the type of uh, slavery that we, yeah. was most, was done and then that scripture used to justify it. So I just, I was sitting here thinking, I was like, man, it's such a leap of logic or yeah. such a leap or such a horrendous misuse of scripture to pull that one little curse. You know, Noah was a prophet to the people pre the flood, but. Just because he says this curse doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that God's Holy Spirit and power was behind that curse to make that happen. Right. It, just a few thoughts. Yep.
0: And, and I, I think another way that you could say that what you just said is that if it were a prescriptive curse that God wanted to execute, then it would be played out in those terms. This is because of what you did. This is what because and God would prescribe. A continued and ongoing uh, persecution, and Moses would have been punished for not fulfilling the slavery of his Cushite wife, or or the Ethiopian eunuch would have been rejected because he was a descendant of Ham. If you're going to carry that all the way down, and um, and so that whole God visiting the sins of the parents onto the fourth generation is a it's the individual exceptions like Rahab and Ruth that demonstrate it's not a rule. I think that's the key is to, to not let this minor, small part of the scripture influence a worldview that justifies your view of these people are by definition inferior when there are so many exceptions that prove that that's not the rule and it's um, but sadly, people are prone to distort and use these kinds of things for those reasons all right, so that's all the foundation a lot of discussion I think it's helpful to understand that the Bible itself gives us lots of material to be confused about or to at least take into account and to to find this balance somewhere in the middle. Do you feel sort of comfortable with where we're at? I don't know. If you disagree with me, that doesn't mean anything wrong. But I'm trying to get there. So then, what about us today living in a multicultural, multifaceted, rapidly deteriorating, I would have to say, Culture, from, when I say deteriorating, I mean deteriorating from the standpoint of pleasing God, right, where uh, we are becoming increasingly wicked as a people, as a nation. Agreed? Right? And so we have much to repent of. And so how do we as Christians speak into this conversation and and respond to... um, the complexities of things in our culture right now, like Black Lives Matter, like, uh, what is it, CSR? Critical race theory, CRT. Um, the idea that there's racism, affirmative action, uh, accusations of Jim Crow, you know, these things back and forth, um, How do we navigate these waters carefully and correctly? And thank goodness we ran out of time to talk. <laughs> so let's put a pen in it, and maybe next week we'll pick up where we left off, okay? But I didn't get a chance to tell David's story, but uh, um, maybe I have enough time to do that. What David and I are talking about a lot these days is trying to understand when a person is being racist or when a person is being insensitive, which depends on how you define the term racist. Because does racist mean you notice differences? Does racism mean that you notice differences and make thoughts and decisions based on those differences? In other words, you behave in a prejudicial way? Or does racism mean that you hate somebody of a different race, or that you want to oppress, or you regard them as inferior. And those are different layers that all get labeled racism, but they are quite a bit different things, right?